Good morning. I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And we're going to be starting a new series this week. I love new series. I get all excited, especially this one because it's the, one of the Gospels. And the Gospels are just my favorite of everything in the Bible. <laughs> so we're going to be starting a new series on the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be going through section by section, right through the book. Um, and it was the very first Gospel that was written. So that's important. And Mark's message was vital to those people who were receiving it, who his recipients, intended recipients were. But it's just as vital to us today. So it's a really good idea to study it. Well, have you ever wished you could start over? I'll bet everybody has a story or two on that. Um, maybe it was the end of a school year when the grades came in and you wished you had studied more or worked harder. Uh, maybe a relationship began in the wrong way, and uh, you're having trouble now smoothing it out. Maybe it was a team sport where your team just didn't do well in the first half, and now it's hopeless for you to catch up. Or maybe angry words poured out of your mouth at one point, and you wish you could just stuff them back in. We all would love a chance to start over. And Mark is a book of new beginnings. It's a chance to abandon all the failures of the past and receive a second chance. And we're going to see that loud and clear in our passage today, which is the first 13 um, verses in Mark. Mark's first readers were probably Roman Gentiles. Uh, we don't know the exact year it was written, but most scholars agree it was sometime in the 60s, probably around 64, 65 AD. It's the first gospel that was ever written, as I said, and the church had been growing like wildfire for 30 or so years. And you can see all of the places where churches had been established um, in the world at that time. <clears throat> the gospel had been preached all over Asia Minor, Macedonia, which is Greece, northern Africa, and Rome. But the church had no New Testament. Now imagine trying to understand Jesus with no New Testament. But that's what they did. We were study, we've been studying in the book of Acts at the um, women's Bible study, and we studied three sermons that were given to the council, or some of them were for the council, some of them were to the people, but sermons that described Jesus from the Old Testament. They used um, <clears throat> prophecies, they used different things, uh, history of Israel, all of that to describe Jesus. That's what they used for their Bible. That was their Bible, the Old Testament. So Mark was the very first book to be written about Jesus. Um, <clears throat> now, they probably had letters from Paul at that point and the other apostles, and they were meticulously copied and then sent out so everybody could get the wonderful truths that are in those. But there was no Bible other than the Old Testament. The book is not meant to be a biography, however. We kind of think of it as that. But the format, according to what uh, ancient texts were like, the format is like a pronouncement. It's a big announcement. It's a proclamation. Um, the, uh, we've titled this series, The Big Reveal, to reflect Mark's content and purpose. And that big reveal begins with a formal dedication describing the purpose of this book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, Mark's title is pretty much uh, 
going to tell us about what's revealed inside of his book. It's like the, the title on a cover. That first word, beginning, is arche, which means source, author of, or originator. It would have brought to mind the first verses of the Old Testament. In the beginning, right? What signified in the Old Testament the start of God doing a mighty work. The start of all creation. Now Mark is using that exact same word to talk about Jesus. For Mark, this beginning is no less momentous than the creation of the world because in Jesus, God had done something new and a new creation had begun. So what does the word gospel mean? Good news. In the ancient times, the word was commonly used to begin a report. For Greeks in the Old Test- and in the Old Testament times, it was used to report victory a lot of times from battlefield. But this time, Mark is using the word to announce another kind of good news. Not a, cor- a bunch of events, but a person. Jesus Christ. We've already learned two things about Jesus here. His name, Christ, is Greek for anointed one, the Messiah, promised in the Old Testament. And his second title is Son of God. With these two titles, Mark is giving us a brief declaration of faith. And then he will unpack these ideas as he goes through his book, which is a presentation of Jesus. So let's get into Mark's prologue. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready for the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Immediately, the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Well, let's ask God to help us with this passage. Heavenly Father, help us to get the good stuff out of this. Help us to find the information, the truths that you would have us to know so that we would have a clear understanding of Jesus and his mission and your plan for the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I started to study this passage... I did what I always do when I study. I started to write down questions. And by the way, that's a really great idea to start studying something. Just look at it and whatever occurs to you. Why this? How come that? Write it down, okay? So here's my questions that I came up with. The first was, what is the significance of the Isaiah quote? Mark picked that verse, and I want to know why. Secondly, why was John so weird? 
I mean, come on, dressed in camel's hair, a leather belt, and then there's what he was eating. Locusts? Really? Third, why did God, John, do his preaching in the wilderness? Wouldn't it have made more sense for him to go into the cities where the people were? He would get his message to so many more people if he did that. Four, what was John's message really about? Fifth, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Because he, he had no sin to repent from. And finally, why did God send Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Why? Six questions, and I'm going to allow those questions to guide us through this passage and help us to develop a foundation for the rest of the book, which we'll be covering in the weeks ahead. So, first, what is the significance of the Isaiah quote? Because Mark starts his content with the words, it is written. Powerful words. You know, my son Daniel, I have, I have four, three sons and a daughter, and Daniel was the second born, and that boy could talk. And I'm talking about logic. He could argue you until you were red in the face, and you could not hope to uh, get him to believe you. <laughs> so you can imagine what a challenge he was for us when we were being a parent. And by the way, that does run the family. His, nie- his cousin, Allie, was a, a, a huge debater and, and gave her, her parents a, time, a hard time with that from the beginning. And then when she was in high school, she announced that she was going to be joining the debate team. And my brother-in-law said, oh, no. He said, she already argues like a lawyer, and now she's getting professional help. <laughs> now, um, it was like arguing with a, Daniel, uh, with a lawyer like Daniel. Um, but I found the magic bullet for him one day. Out of the blue, thank the Lord, <laughs> almost accidentally. He had been mean to his sister or something. I don't even remember what the issue was. But he absolutely felt justified in doing what he had done. So it was, I was not getting through to him. And I remember we were sitting on the stairs in our foyer, and we were talking about it. And as I'm talking and thinking, I am not going to win this, I looked down and I saw my Bible that I'd put there so I would grab it the next time I went up the stairs. So I picked it up and I said, here, Daniel, I'm going to show you something from God's Word, what's written there. It is written And I took that word and I opened it up to James and I talked to him about how the tongue needed to be used as an instrument to build up and not to destroy. And God said this, Daniel. And you know what? He was listening. And he understood. And now, suddenly, when he prayed with me, he was praying the right things. God's word had that kind of an impact on him. It had an authority that I could never dream that my own words could ever have. Those words, it is written, would have had the same impact on Mark's readers. He was about to tell them how the story of Jesus was connected with their Bible, the Old Testament. And they were certainly going to sit up and pay attention to that. And Mark then quotes from Isaiah 43, and this is what it says. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now, whenever... Uh, an Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament. It's a really good idea to look at the context in which that quote was taken out of because the, the listeners would have known the context and they would have interpreted it correctly. So we need to go back and look ourselves. Well, it's the beginning of the third kind of section of Isaiah and it starts with a whole new kind of theme and the opening words are this. 
comfort my people. It signaled the something new that was going to happen to the people of God. Judah was coming home out of exile. God was going to redeem his people. He was going to establish his kingdom. It was big news. God was giving his people a chance to start over. In his grace, he was giving them another chance. Now, the topography of the Judean wilderness was rugged. There's hills and valleys. They go from Jerusalem down into Jericho, which is actually below sea level, and um, very hilly, very rugged territory. Jerusalem sits about 3,100 feet above the valley, and it was a 15-mile walk from Jericho up to Jerusalem, and it was uphill the whole way. Um, so it, was, it would have been something if somebody had come through and just leveled out that land, made the whole journey a whole lot easier. But John wasn't literally going to go in with a shovel and start digging at mountains. Of course not. It's a metaphor. If the messenger would prepare the way in the Judean wilderness for the ultimate revelation of God's kingdom in Jesus of Nazareth. Now anyone who knew Isaiah would have understood that context and by quoting this verse, Mark was showing an integral part of the big reveal that was promised years ago. As John carried out his ministry, he was preparing the way for the ultimate revelation of God's kingdom from Jesus in Nazareth. So now we get to the second question. Why was John so weird? Now Mark tells us that he was clothed in camel's hair, he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. I just want to know from the kids, how many of you had locusts last night for dinner? Nobody, huh? And you kind of, I know, you is right. And so I just wonder to myself, why? Why was he doing that? You would think if he was like a prophet from God, he would want to be well-dressed and respectable and that kind of a person, but instead he's eating locusts. Well, when we go back to the Old Testament... Elijah, the great prophet, was dressed exactly that way. In 1 Kings 17, it says, The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Elijah was not dependent on anybody, any part of civilization, in any way. He was a man of the wilderness. Then later, messengers describe Elijah to their king. He says, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. Mark's description of John identifies him very clearly with the prophet Elijah. And a few chapters into Mark, we see John criticizing Herod Antipas for his uh, moral failure, just like Elijah confronting King Ahab. So in his dress, in his dietary habits, and in his proclamation, Mark is clearly associating John with the great prophet. So why did John do all his preaching in the wilderness? Why the wilderness? Well, one thing you should do is always look for, when you're studying a passage, is look for repeating words or phrases. And in this little passage of 13 verses, wilderness, the word wilderness, is, ta- is said four times. Four times. Now, do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. And you're going to find, as we go through this book, that wilderness is a real theme for much of what's in Mark. It's mentioned over and over again. Well, what was the significance of the wilderness? Well, first off, it's one more way in which Mark is identifying with John, uh, John with the great 
prophet Elijah. He was preaching and baptizing in the same general region associated with Elijah. It also sets John apart from the culture of the refined temple cult of Israel. People were being called out from their uh, routines. They're being called out from the comfort of their own homes. And you know, there's something about deprivation and suffering that opens our hearts to God's prodding, doesn't it? Being away from these things makes us better listeners. So there's a lot more significance to the wilderness, but hang on because we're going to add to that list in a few minutes with my, another question. But we need to talk about what was John's preaching really about. Mark was telling us he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the, be- for, oh, for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know why my mouth's not working. The word repentance means more than putting uh, a stop to sin in your life. It does not mean stop sinning. Uh, the word, and I'm really glad it doesn't mean that because I don't know about you, but I haven't been really good at that, the stop sinning thing. But re- the word repentance, it's a compound word in the Greek, and it means to change one's mind or to alter one's understanding. John was calling you people back to God. Paul tells us in Romans that Israel had a big problem. The nation was not pursuing righteousness by faith, but by works. And works doesn't do it for God. In Isaiah, he had the same complaint against his nation way back then. He said, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. They were going through the motions. Jesus taught the most significant command in the Bible was you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. The heart is what's important to God. The heart God wanted the hearts of Israel. He wanted them to turn back from him, away from their shallow rule following, and give themselves completely to him. It's easy for our hearts to wander, isn't it? I'll tell you, it's sometimes a very long time between Sunday to Sunday for me. And sometimes the activities and all the things just get my attention away from where I need to be focused. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my daughter Melanie and I left to go to Connecticut, and we drove up right, right up there, a record five hours and 45 minutes, never done that before. And uh, we stayed there three days, had a nice visit, and then we were coming home. And as we were driving on the Jersey Turnpike, Beth called me. And Beth said, so, you know, tell me about the trip. And so we were telling her all about Connecticut. And I said, well, you tell me. What happened in church on Sunday? And she said, Julie, you were there. In fact... You were preaching. <laughs> I said, that was, that was this Sunday? Time can really stretch things out, can it? And we can, it, we can lose our focus in time. So what do we do when we come here? We come here to, to gather as Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord, and the first thing we do in a service is give praise to God, the singing. And what does that singing do? It focuses, gets our focus right back to where it needs to be. And we start singing about praises and things that honor God. And our heart softens again. Remember that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the land I love. Something happens to us as we sing those words. 
Our hearts are drawn back to him. And what does that do? That prepares us to listen to the word of God being taught. It's a beautiful thing. Well, the repentance John called Israel to do would do the same for them because repentance would put them back in the right frame of mind and heart. That would enable them to accept and receive the Redeemer who was about to break in on the scene. It was an important way to get ready. And then, asking them to be baptized, that would be a public declaration of that change of heart. Now, you have to know, baptism was not a thing for the Jews. Uh, If you were born into a Jewish family and you didn't reject God's law, then you were in with God. No questions asked. The only people that were actually baptized were the, the proselytes, the people who had come out of Gentiles and wanted to convert to Judaism. So to ask a Jew to be baptized would have been more than a little offensive. But that was kind of John's point, I think. They had to change that way of entitled thinking. They had to come to God in the same way that any Gentile would. A relationship with God was not based on being Jewish. Baptism leveled the playing field for them. And there was a huge spiritual significance to water baptism. Some passages in the Old Testament speak of the Spirit being poured out like water. These passages refer especially to at the time when God is ushering in his kingdom when he would cleanse his people and give them power to speak for him. There's several of those passages. The one I picked out was again in Isaiah. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And one last thing. When when John was asking for uh, or telling them that uh, Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, That was an extraordinary claim because in the Old Testament, the only one who would uh, give the Holy Spirit was God. So that whole announcement right there identifies the spiritual power of Jesus to be equal with God's. So why was Jesus baptized? He had no sin. He had no need for repentance. So why get baptized? Well, to answer that question, again, we have to go back into history all the way this time to Exodus. Because when God called Israel out of Egypt, he defined his relationship with them like this. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go that he may serve me. He's talking to the Pharaoh. Israel was his son. Called out in the wilderness to be that in that relationship. But Israel failed to be what God called them to be. It was supposed to be a nation of priests bringing people to God and the light to the Gentile nations. But Israel did not live up to its identity as God's son. So in the years following the exile, Isaiah wrote of God's promise to bring another servant. And he said this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And that servant was Jesus Christ. Jesus had come as that perfect fulfillment of that promise. He would be what Israel failed to be. A faithful son, Jesus is Israel, reduced to one. So Jesus was baptized in identification with the nation of Israel because he was to be 
God's true fulfillment of his, God's purpose for them. He would be the true Israel. He would serve the Lord in perfect obedience and faithfulness. And he comes up out of the water. God confirms his role with a loud voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that was a pretty dramatic moment, if you can't tell. The word Mark uses to talk about the heavens opening up uh, is a pretty specific, almost a violent kind of word. It literally means torn open. Mark only uses this word one other time in, the Bible, in, the, in his book, and the word is for the time uh, at the crucifixion when Christ died and the veil was ripped from the top on down before the Holy of Holies. And so it's signifying that man had now access to God. Ripped violently. The curtain was really thick. And it was, it was a powerful thing that happened. And here Mark is using it to describe what happened in the heavens. I'm sure it was something to behold. Then the Holy Spirit came down like a dove and further validated Jesus as the new Israel, representative of a nation. All of it was given as an unqualified approval and recognition of Jesus' competence of what he had come to do. And by the way, I don't want you to miss the fact that all three parts of the Trinity are represented there. The Son in the water, the Father's voice, and the Spirit like a dove. So we have one last question then. Why was Jesus then sent into the wilderness to be tested? Mark doesn't give us many of the details. The other gospel writers give a lot of details. They tell what Jesus, Satan said, they tell what Jesus said, they tell all these things. We only get this verse. He was in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and angels were ministering to them. So there's not a lot to go on here. Thank you, Mark. But I think Mark has excluded those details because he's driving toward a point. You know, in the first exodus, when God called Israel into the wilderness, which would be coming, would be a testing place for the nation. They failed those tests miserably. They were faithless. They were um, creating and worshiping an image when Moses was up on the mountain getting a law. They were stubborn and rebellious and stiff-necked people who complained and disobeyed and tested God's patience in every imaginable way. Now Jesus, representing the nation, is called out into the wilderness for a second exodus, a second time of testing. But his testing proved him faithful and obedient right to the end. So, how does Mark op- our Mark's opening passage impact my life? Well, John the Baptist's proclamation was a chance to begin again. A new age was about to dawn. Something new was about to be revealed. And as Jesus went into the waters of baptism, the big reveal happened. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And the, his unique sonship commanded the one who was perfectly living out what the nation had failed so miserably to do. What we see in the beginning of Mark, though, was not some afterthought. It wasn't God thinking uh, that that earlier plan of salvation, that's gone amok. So I've got something new then. There was no plan B. Jesus wasn't plan B. He was plan A all along. The Bible calls him the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Rather than a switch in strategy, Jesus stands in continuity with the work that God did in Israel. 
as the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. And the ministry of Jesus is not even understandable without the Old Testament because he brings it all to fulfillment. So in closing, I do want to tell you a quick story. I don't know if it's a story, but tell you about a place in Japan. Um, it's considered to be a modern engineering marvel. It started, it was put into preparation where nearby Osaka and Tokyo airports, they were unable to meet the demand. Planes were coming and going. They didn't have enough uh, places to be able to accept tra air traffic, and there was no room to expand them. So they decided to make a new airport. So um, they, they uh, to solve the problem, they, Japan took on one of the most challenging engineering projects the world has ever seen. They decided to create Kansai International Airport by constructing an entire island, as you can see on the slide. Then uh, they built on that island an airport terminal and runways. And then, of course, they needed a bridge in order for people to access the island. So it would span two miles from the mainland. It had an upper deck for auto transport and a lower internal deck for rail lines. Well, as you can imagine, there was a lot to consider in building that bridge. The load it would carry would be varied. It would have trains. It would have trucks, cars, bikes, people. There were a lot of possible natural disasters that they needed to consider, too. High winds, hurricanes, tornadoes, snow, earthquakes, and rushing water. And they had to plan for any combination of those things, the load plus the uh, natural disaster. For example, a train crossing a bridge and an earthquake in the vicinity of the bridge could occur at any time. So they had to plan for those things. They had to plan for every contingency. There could be no plan B because lives were at stake. God, the great engineer, has been orchestrating all things for his great plan. There's never a plan B. He's working all kinds of details, from putting leaders and nations into power to being lord over the smallest details in our own lives. All of it, the big, the small, will work toward his purposes, the Bible tells us, and he will accomplish what he started, the Bible promises. That's the God we serve. What he has begun, he will complete. And as much as we trust him with the big plan, we can trust him also with any moment in our own personal needs. So I want to ask you this morning, what thing in your life is he calling you to trust him for right now? Maybe it's a relationship that went sorrow or a failure that still stings you with regret. Maybe it's a sin you keep on committing even though you promise yourself you're never going to do it again. Or maybe something has robbed you of hope. Whatever the thing, God is greater. The God of new beginnings calls us to a new beginning <clears throat> every morning. In Lamentations, it says this, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore, I have hope in him. Trust him. 
to make all things new for you because he's a God of new beginnings.